I feel like being in church is more natural when the light is still out there and we come back to church while it's still daylight. Not that I don't come when it's not, but it does feel a little bit more natural. So happy daylight savings. That's coming from a night owl too. That's day, this daylight saving is rough for me, but it brings good things. Um, tonight, I just want to um, start off with some slides Nick has for me and Tina up there. Just take a moment to look at these three pictures and what do these three images have in common? We have a glass of milk, an abundance of fresh fruits and vegetables, and a very satisfied sleeping baby. Okay. You can shout it out. Say it. Nature. Nourishment. Yes. Yes. Rest. Yeah. These are all these are all good answers. These things all help us to grow. And then our second slide, this is more me. We have coffee, we have burgers, ice cream, french fries, that was lunch yesterday. And we have people who have trying to survive the daylight savings nodding off. But what do these three things have in common? Yeah, undernourishing, yep. Yes. Yes, they're not helpful for our health. Essentially, these are things that, uh, you know, your parents or science will tell you stunts your growth. Um, so that's the, the word I was looking for, stunting growth. So um, I'm using these slides to introduce this one in particular, the stunting growth. Um, I'm using this slide to introduce my topic tonight, which is... What is stunting your spiritual growth? Um, we're going to talk about five things. I just have five things I want to briefly go through tonight and list um, that can stunt, you know, has the ability to stunt our, our spiritual growth. And just like the link between nutrition and growth, um, the things that we allow in our spiritual diet, so to speak, impact our ability to grow spiritually. Uh, and Nick has a nice slide up here for me. These are the five things that I'm going to touch on tonight. And I chose this list kind of arbitrarily. Uh, it could, the list could be miles long of things that stunt our growth. Um, but I just want to look at a few things more closely tonight. And they're going to be comparison. Uh, that's number one. Number two is resistance to correction. Number three is your past. Number four is distractions, and number five is isolation. Because these are, you know, five things that can really impact uh, anyone. But I'm going to look at example, uh, lead, examples of leaders in Scripture or kind of seasoned saints, we would say, in Scripture as our examples tonight. Because I think um, it's important to be honest with the fact that even as leaders, I know this is our servantship, our leadership service, and even as leaders or budding leaders or leaders in training or aspiring leaders um, tonight, uh, we all have to be honest with the fact that we deal with ebbs and flows in our spiritual walks too. 
And whether we realize it or not, you know, our personal uh, growth, spiritual growth affects and impacts, you know, the whole church, the, the church on the whole, because the church body is made up of individuals. I know that's nothing new to us, but um, each of us affect the whole, whether we believe that at times or not. And hopefully we know that part of the grand plan that God has for each of us is that as his church, we continue to be you know, transformed by his spirit as we grow in our relationship with him and with one another, which we heard from Pastor Stephen this morning extensively on that. So last Sunday, and then again this morning, I had to edit my notes to include, and then again this morning, um, because already by last Sunday I was thinking about uh, a potted plant as well and its ability to grow, and Pastor Stephen brought that up. And then again this morning, he used the analogy of this potted plant, you know, versus a plant in the ground that, that has roots that are able to spread out and grow to its full potential. And as he said this morning, the growth potential of the same plant that is potted versus a plant that's in the ground is drastically different um, if it's potted or in the ground. Because a potted plant will only grow as big as its pot or structure will allow it. So a potted plant will grow, but because it's constrained, its growth is restrained. That felt real preachery. I had to keep that in there. Um, but uh, Pastor Stevens' point was about where the church is headed. He was speaking of, you know, the structure, the pot we're in now, we're beginning to restructure things, or we have been, because it's necessary for growth. Um, and I'm excited about the message he brought this morning, and I'm excited about the future here, even though, you know, a little uncertain, a little uncomfortable, but um, in the end, if God is in it, it will be okay, which I believe he is. Uh, but my focus is on us as individuals tonight. Um, and as I talk about each of these five points, I'm going to end with something I'm calling a food for thought um, in the form of a question at, at the end of each of these five points for us to kind of think about or challenge ourselves or reflect on um, as we move through each point. So I'm actually not going to have a, a true conclusion tonight. I'm going to move through these five points, and each little five point kind of has its own reflection, conclusion, and we can kind of uh, reflect as we go through the sermon. So number one, comparison. Um, I preached about comparison a few weeks ago in a different context, uh, but for leaders, comparison not only stunts our own personal growth, but it'll, it'll discourage the growth of somebody else. In order to compare, it's in the nature of the word, in order to compare, you have to have at least two people involved. And so the act of comparing affects more than just you as an individual. So let's look at a group of leaders in scripture that were having trouble with comparison. And it's the Big 12. It's Jesus' disciples. Uh, and, you know, at this point, they were Jesus' leaders in training. Um, and so we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 9, verses 33 through 38. And this same exchange is also recorded um, in the other two Gospels. Did I say Matthew? Is that right? I meant Mark. 
Mark chapter 9, although it is in Matthew, it's just a different chapter. But we're in Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 38, and it says, After they arrived at Capernaum and settled in a house, Jesus asked his disciples, What were you discussing out on the road? But they didn't answer because they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. He sat down and called the twelve disciples over to him and said, Whoever wants to be first must, be, must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. Then he put a little child among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes not only me, but also my Father who sent me. So in this chapter of Matthew, there's an argument here about who's the most significant of Jesus's followers. And remember, this question comes up among his leaders in training. These are the leaders asking, well, t tell us, you know, rabbi, teacher, master, tell us who's the greatest. And Jesus took opportunities like this to teach his disciples what's expected of those who are his disciples. And then a little further down in verses 49 through 50, Jesus says, salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? You must have the qualities of salt among yourselves and live in peace with each other. So Jesus expects his disciples to work together in harmony. And his point is comparison produces you know, arguments rather than the peace and harmony that he wants his disciples to, to demonstrate. So this trap of comparison is not... Uh, just a problem among the unchurched or those outside of the church or the new person to Christ who's still kind of learning the, the ways of God. Um, because as we see with the Big 12 here, and Jesus' selective, you know, they were Jesus' selected group of men, leaders are just as susceptible to the comparison trap as anyone else because, you know, it's a human problem. It's universal. And comparison doesn't discriminate because we have a real spiritual enemy that is hard at work trying to destroy the leaders and the budding leaders of the church. Um, because our enemy, you know, is wise in some ways, although hate to give him credit for that. But the enemy knows that if he can destroy the stronger, then he'll have no trouble destroying the weaker. But while the enemy is working to divide and destroy, Scripture reminds the church in, John, in 1 John 4 and 4, that you belong to God. My dear children, you have already won a victory over those people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. Amen. So our food for thought, for comparison, is the disciples asked Jesus who's the greatest, and Jesus' answer kind of made it obvious that they were asking the wrong question. And I think maybe the more appropriate question for the church, for us tonight, to ask ourselves, you know, reflect, remind ourselves, wherever we find ourselves, is who, who am I serving? But more specific than that, am I serving someone who is unlike me? Which we heard a little bit this morning, uh, in the sermon this morning. Because Jesus said, whoever wants to be first uh, must be last in service to everyone else. And elsewhere in the scripture, when Jesus talks about serving in the kingdom of God, 
He challenges those who are his disciples to serve the lowly and the weaker and the widows and the children and the fatherless and things like people like that. So in your service in God's kingdom, are you serving someone who is not like you? Um, when I first moved to St. Louis as a student at uh, Urshan Graduate School, I attended an inner city church in St. Louis, and being a, you know coming into that church as a student in biblical studies, my pastor invested in me and became a part of my leadership development. And like any you know good leader would do who is developing somebody you know underneath them, one of my first assignments he gave me was you know, I want, I want you to go teach a Bible study. And I'm like, okay, I mean, I can do that. And then he said, but I want you to find someone to teach who's not like you. And I thought, oh, oh no, yeah. Because often people who aren't like you, sometimes they're people you don't like. I mean, not always, but Sometimes the connection is there, and obviously the, you know, your comfort level with someone who's not like you is not there. It's much, you know, Scripture tells us to show love to someone you love isn't hard at all. There's no challenge in that. Anybody can do that. Sinners can do that. Um, but what makes you as a disciple is showing love to the person that's difficult to love. So I did. I crossed paths with a young lady that probably outside of this type of instruction, I probably would have had no reason to ever pay attention to. There's nothing wrong with her, just someone that we probably would have not crossed paths before, uh, you know, otherwise, and for her either. I don't think she would have crossed paths with me had, you know, I not uh, reached out to her. And, um, you know, what started as a Bible study became a friendship, and now that seven years later, now that I'm here seven years later, uh, living in Delaware, moved from St. Louis, we're still in contact. So that's a, that's a blessing. God always knows what he's asking us to do. Um, our second point, then, is resistance to correction. In the context of leadership, leaders can fall into the trap of believing that we've kind of spiritually outgrown the need for correction. But God's correction is always for our benefit, and no matter where we are in our walk with God, there's more to know and understand about God. Um, and it's that principle, the more we know, the more we realize how, how much we have yet to learn. And in the scriptures that we just read, I'm referencing back to the disciples and Jesus asking who is the greatest, um, Jesus can teach and share his wisdom with his disciples until he's blue in the face. But it's the responsibility of the disciples to accept his correction and, in, and his instruction and to apply that. Um, because those who reject correction probably really don't want to change at all on the core, deep down. And that's where that resistance comes from. And we have to be honest about that. But if we can't receive correction, then scriptures tell us we truly can't really be a disciple of Christ um, because that is a requirement and the spirit just continues to transform us in every stage we find ourselves in our walk with God. I know a lot of us have experienced that already. Um, Psalms 94 and 12 says, Joyful are those you discipline, Lord, those you teach with your instruction. So in order to have ears to hear, here's my little food for thought. 
God's, in order to have ears to hear God's correction in our lives, we have to honestly answer the question, do I believe that what God has for me, you know, do you believe that what God has for you is better than, you know, your selfish desires? And do I truly believe that God's way is the best way? Um, number three is your past. And I'm just diving right into this one because, because I was reading a little storybook this week with Juliet and kind of thought about something for the first time. So I'm diving right into, we're going to look at the Apostle Paul's conversion uh, in his testimony. Um, so nobody has a past like the Apostle Paul's past. So I'm going to read a part of Paul's conversion story. Um, and you know what? I think I, let me just see. I know I'm going to um, Acts chapter 9. Nick, is that up there? What verse am I in? 21? 20? Okay. I think I only have 21 on here, but if there's 20, there it is. I'll read it up there. So Acts chapter 9, verse 20 says, And immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogues, speaking of Paul, saying, He is indeed the Son of God. Verse 21, All who heard him were amazed. This is after Paul's uh, experience you know, getting blinded, being healed, and going from Saul to Paul. So here's Paul, and all who were amazed said, Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, they asked? And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them into chains to the leading priests? Because that was, that was Paul's past. If Paul showed up, Around Christians, you knew it was going to happen, and it wasn't going to be pretty. Um, so they figured, oh, oh, what, what in the world is going on here? Isn't he here? Isn't that why he's here? And verse twenty-two says Saul's preaching became more and more powerful, and the Jews in the, Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And after a while, some of the Jews plotted together to kill him, and they were watching for him day and night at the city gate so they could murder him, but Saul was told about their plot. So during the night, some of the other believers lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the city hall. And when Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. Because of what? Because of his past. Not because of what he was currently doing or who he currently said he was, uh, and proving he was, but because of his past and what they knew of him, uh, you know, rightfully so. I was talking to my mom, and my mom was like, well, I would be afraid of him too, you know. I'd say the same things. Um, they did not believe that he had truly become a believer. And I know amongst friends and family or communities, people who have come out of, you know, their past, our past, and have had trouble with others believing that you've God's truly changed you and that you've really committed to change. So I know we can relate with Paul uh, to that. Um, but what I just, I thought, nobody has a past like Paul because I'm not sure many of us could say, I went out to persecute and kill those who I'm now sitting in church with. Maybe there's a few of us, but I don't think a whole lot, and I won't ask you to raise your hands. Um... Okay, good, I read that one. So although this, this uh, story is not new to me or to you, um, 
Juliet had checked out, my daughter had checked out this little Bible story chapter book on Paul's conversion story, and we were reading it this week. And that's when I thought, I realized, I thought, I never thought about the extent to which Paul had to deal with his past. I mean, that's just right in your face. You're trying to do a work for God. You're trying to be a new person. You're trying to follow the voice of God uh, and turn your life around. And you've got responses like this, you know, slammed in your face and that you have to overcome. Um, But, you know, Paul was able to kind of, well, he must have been able to kind of work through that. And I guess that's why he said he had to die daily to that old man. Because even if you can in yourself resolve that you have a past, had a past, that we all have a past, and we can get past that, some people might not be able to do that. And you have to die to that person and die to that old story and die to that, you know, old mentality daily in order to be able to keep moving forward. And that's what Paul did. It said he grew in power. He grew, uh, his message grew in power, despite those saying, if you're here, you're here to do this, right? You're here to to persecute. You're here to kill. You're here to take away. And Paul's, you know, tune had totally changed. Thank God for his transforming power. Um, So our food for thought coming from Paul is, you know, do we really believe that we are made new in Christ? Again, we all have a past, and salvation, as wonderful as it is, doesn't necessarily eradicate our past um, or our memory of it or others' memory of it. But it does create a new future for us. Amen. And I have to believe that Paul must have believed this because his past didn't stop him. Uh, to the point that he was one, he's one of the most well-known names in the Bible, characters in the Bible, and he's responsible for most of the New Testament. So, um, you know, what an example to us. No matter what your past is, you can move forward in Christ. And let's do our best to believe that. Um, number four is distractions. Um, This is a familiar story out of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, verses 20 through 22. It's the rich young ruler. And in this passage, a rich young man had come to see Jesus with a question about inheriting eternal life. And Jesus says, well, if you want want that, you have to follow my commandments. So the young man says, well, you know, which ones? Just so that he could say he's followed them all. Um, And Jesus said, you know, lists a few of the commandments. And picking up in verse 20... Here uh, in Matthew, it says, where am I going? All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? He asked Jesus. And Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. So this story is, is kind of about priorities that are, uh, that are out of balance. And, and this rich young man justifying these wrong priorities in order to kind of stay satisfied with these selfish desires. Um, so what Jesus was offering this young man was better than what he was, you know, clasping onto, his riches and his wealth, as he walked away from Jesus. So he obviously didn't expect to hear Jesus' response. 
Um, but, when, but he walked right into it because when he asked Jesus, what do I lack? He asked the question. So be careful what you ask the Lord because you might not like the answer. So Jesus answered, um, since he asked him, he gave him an answer, and the answer was not to his liking, and Jesus just didn't prioritize what this rich young ruler prioritized. This, this young man was distracted with the comfort that his religious upbringing had brought him and with the comfort that his monetary wealth had brought him. And distractions are comforting. They're familiar, they give a sense of security, but while comfort might maintain us where we are in our walk with God, it's just not conducive to growth. And eventually, like this potted plant we've been hearing about that needs to be repotted or replanted in the ground in in order to survive, the comforts of now just won't sustain us either. And comfort is kind of a tricky thing because it's deceiving because it's not something that is obviously a negative in life. Um, Comfortable is comfortable. It's painless. Uh, you know, we remember those growing pains in our, in our youth, and growth is not comfortable. It's typically painful. And so obviously comfort is preferred because it's not a painful place to be in. Uh, but comfort is the difference between what a potted plant is and what a potted plant, plant could be. A potted plant in its little pot is alive and well. It's alive, it's green, it's growing, to a certain extent, it's fine, but I just don't believe fine is what God has called us to and what God's called his church to be. He's called his church to be overcomers in him, and his plan is bigger than our pots. So, <laughs> I like that one too, his plan is bigger than our So, thank you. <laughs> Sometimes you know you get clever and you just kind of like do this. Not all the time, but I got a couple in the sermon tonight. I like it. Um, So this young man was comfortable with where he was spiritually, and he was comfortable with his wealth. And his mistake was he expected Jesus to be comfortable and pleased with him too. Oops. Um, So our food for thought is that we can be distracted by so many things. That's an obvious statement. Um, We can be distracted with our past, with our work, both within the church and outside of the church. Um, Our entertainment, obligations, societal pressures, successes, wealth, health, and stealth. No, I'm kidding. I was just rhyming there. But wealth and health. Um, But what this story leaves me questioning is, what did this rich young ruler fear that Jesus was asking him to do and be? What did he really fear? And what do we fear Jesus is asking of us? Um, Because that fear will keep us gripping onto the distraction that's comfortable and that we find comforting in the moment. And that rich young ruler held tightly to the security of his religious upbringing and his uh, current state of wealth. And so what distractions are we holding on to in that same way? And that brings me to point number five, which is isolation. Um, I taught the youth class this past Wednesday, and the topic and what we talked about was the importance of connection, namely Christian connections and being connected to the church body. So it's a very timely lesson in the midst of what our church has been um, hearing. And what I really loved about the lesson is that it listed that being connected to the church body 
is a part of your salvation. Just like Pastor Stephen said this morning, um, of course, there's no salvation outside of Acts 2.38, repentance and water and spirit baptism. We absolutely must have that. But equally as important to our salvation is connection to the body of Christ. Um, one of the positive connections it focused on was making connections with church members that are stronger in the faith than you are. Um, as leaders, I'm certain that you all are that person, you know, that, that connection for someone, someone else. Because that's what's part of what defines a leader, is you influence, your influence towards somebody else on someone else. But, you know, we also need to have someone in which the relationship flows the other way too, amen? Um, someone that is a strength in giving and investing and encouraging you. Because not all forms of isolation uh, looks like being physically isolated. That's one way to be isolated, is to be physically isolated from people and not having contact with anyone. But if you don't have someone in whom you can turn to as a strength in the faith, um, then you have isolated yourself from spiritual care. And that's not what God desires for any of us. Because the purpose and the benefit of this type of relationship is that it fosters the opportunity for growth, which is exactly what we're talking about, what stunts our growth. We don't want those things. We want the things that help us to grow. And things like our small groups, you know, God bless them, are so good for this, to work against isolation. Um, but we know that in a larger assembly, it's sometimes easy to remain isolated and disconnected. You might be here physically with us, but you're not connected. Um, and, you know, we need to be aware of both types of isolation because um, neither are good. So the larger assembly, as we know, has its purpose, but sm our small groups have their purpose too, and this is one of their purposes, is to foster that connection for spiritual growth. Um, the scripture that was given for the youth lesson, and I'm going to use here, was Proverbs 27 and 17, a familiar one to probably a lot, as iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. Um, you know, just a quick, I shared with the youth that growing up, I was part of a, a starting church, a home missions church, as we call them. And we didn't, my sister and I didn't really have very many peers around us. Uh, but one of the most meaningful relationships was with our pastor's wife. And she took my sister and me kind of under her wings and helped shape our spiritual life as young people. And, you know, that's just something I can't put a price tag on. Um, it wasn't a suffocating relationship. They don't have to be suffocating. Uh, it was encouraging, and it was a simple connection, but it was a very important connection. And so my point is, no matter if you're the person that's seeking this type of connection, um, or if you're the leader who can offer this type of connection to someone, everybody needs this in their, in their spiritual walk, someone who can strengthen and encourage you in the faith, because like we heard this morning, and the youth lesson taught on Wednesday night, your salvation depends on it. Uh, so all of these points that I briefly made tonight, you know, a fear could have been another topic, and I didn't go there because we could go on and on forever, but many of these points um, are rooted in fear, and fear has its fingerprints kind of all over 
things that can stunt our spiritual growth because fear is paralyzing. Fear does cause us to stop. It does cause growth to be stunted. Um, and in fact, a common path that fear often leads down to leads to is isolation. Uh, it's a powerful, powerful force that's usually given too much power and, in my opinion, too much credit in our lives. Um, so I want to just end with this verse as a reminder that the spirit that lives within uh, his church, uh, out of 2 Timothy 1 and 7, it says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and, and of a sound mind. And that's just a lengthy thought. <laughs>